Oh, good morning, everybody. Good to be with you again. Uh, I want to start just by saying again, thank you so much for uh, helping us out and uh, following our request that you wear masks in the building. Just as a reminder, when you're in here seated, not singing, if you need a mask break, please feel free to, to take a little break. Um, but otherwise, when you're up and moving around, we do thank you for, for keeping that on. Um, I hate to start my message this way, but I need to confess something this morning. And it's, it's I think I've mentioned this before, but it's getting worse. Um, I am a habitual scarer. Have I told you that before? I really enjoy scaring people. And so um, I, it just, is, it, it's becoming somewhat problematic. Is anyone, is anyone else with me on that? Do you enjoy, anybody else in here? Yes, I knew we probably had some other scarers in the room and it, it really can become an issue. Just this past week, in fact, uh, Kevin Russell, who is just up here, sweet, sweet Kevin Russell, was working all alone back in the gin kids hallway. And I knew he was back there and it's quiet back there. We got a conference room where he likes to go and just get lost in his thoughts. And you may not know this, but Kevin's jumpy. Like he's, he's really jumpy anyway. But when he's back there, I mean, he just, he just gets zoned in. And so I think Kevin and I were the only ones here and I was gonna make some coffee. And so the polite thing to do is to ask if Kevin would like some, right? So I very, very quietly went back to the room where he was working and, uh, and opened the door. He didn't even hear it. His back was to me. He was writing something on the whiteboard. And I said, hey, Kev, you want some coffee? And he lost it. I mean, he just, he was coming out of his skin and then he proceeded to tell me how much he loves me. And um, I just can't stop. I love capitalizing on the unexpected, finding, finding people in a situation where they just wouldn't expect it and, uh, and jumping out. A couple of years ago, I noticed our Carmel campus pastor, Jerry Neville, was working in the garage, similar situation. And I don't even know how I found this out or what was going on, but Danielle Baum had a gorilla suit in her trunk. And uh, somehow we put those two things together and Joel Burkhead recorded what happened next. Check this out. So I don't know if you could hear Jerry or not, but what he's saying is, I intentionally sat toward the door knowing that Ben Krause was going to come down here and mess with me, not even remembering there's a door right behind him, you ding dong. But uh, I don't think Jerry's ever forgiven me for that one. No matter where you are, a guy in a gorilla suit is unexpected, right? Well, this morning, we're launching a brand new series titled Unexpected Christmas. 
And that really is a very fitting title uh, for the Christmas story because virtually everything about it is unexpected. I mean, you think about the the timing of Christ's birth, you think about where he was born, you think about uh, the people who knew that he had been born and and the people who didn't have any idea that he had come on the scene. I mean, all of it was so unexpected. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at those unexpected parts of the Christmas story, specifically in Matthew's gospel. And so if you've brought a Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to open to Matthew chapter 1. And uh, maybe, maybe you don't own a Bible. We would love to give you on it as a gift. Uh, you can stop by the info hub on your way out this morning and just tell them you'd like to have a Bible. We, we'd love to give you one. But as you turn to Matthew chapter 1, I want to give you just a little bit of background because Matthew himself is actually an unexpected disciple of Jesus. Okay, when we first meet Matthew, he is actually employed by the Roman government as a tax collector for them. And so he very likely, uh, Matthew had very likely been uh, kind of treated as an outcast to his people, the Jewish people, for aligning himself with this conquering government, but also because tax collectors in those days had a certain amount of money that they needed to collect for the Roman government, but then they were allowed to collect as much more money as they wanted. And then that just went to them. And so you can see that that it would become a a very wealthy situation for a tax collector. We don't know that Matthew specifically was taking advantage of his people that way, but it's very possible and I believe even probable uh, that he was involved in some things like that. But all of that changed. Everything changed for Matthew when he met Jesus. And he eventually became one of uh, Christ's closest disciples, one of the 12 in his inner circle. And then he went on to write one of the four Gospels. And it's important to note, especially for uh, our time together this morning, that Matthew's Gospel seems to be written specifically to the Jewish people. And so you see that in the way that he will make mention uh, of certain things, Jewish customs or uh, Jewish uh, festivals, and he doesn't take any time at all to explain those things or to describe them. It's like he's expecting that his audience would already know all about those things because he's intentionally uh, likely writing to the, the Jewish people. And so Matthew starts his gospel in a very unexpected way, at least for us as 21st century readers. It's a, a way that we might think is, is somewhat out of the ordinary because Matthew starts with a genealogy. How many of you have ever traced uh, your genealogy, your family tree? Maybe on a a website like Ancestry.com or 23andMe, those things are are tools that can help you put together the pieces of of your family. And it's really become kind of a popular thing to do to look into that. But while we might pursue our genealogies for fun or for fact-finding, the Jewish people, uh, really a, a genealogy for them was so much more than that. Their genealogy was everything. All of their identity was wrapped up in where did my family come from? Who's in my family tree? And so if you came from good stock, you likely had a prominent place in society. And if you came from not so good stock, well, then you probably are a shepherd (laughs) or something lower on the totem pole like that. Because again, your genealogy was your identity. And so knowing this, knowing knowing that that's true with the, the Jewish people and wanting to show his Jewish audience exactly who Jesus was, he begins his gospel with a genealogy. And uh, that's what we're going to look at today. I'm going to read 
read for you the genealogy found in Matthew chapter 1, and I'm going to ask for your grace because these names are as weird to me as they are to you, some of them. Uh, But here we go, Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtel, Shealtel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathen, Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Ah. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. I don't really need to say anything else this morning, do I? I bet you're already feeling encouraged and equipped to tackle a new week just by hearing the word of the Lord, right? Are we ready to go? <laughs> Probably not. Maybe if we're honest, how many of you, when you come to a list like this in Scripture, you just skip it? <laughs> or maybe you skim over it. Uh, some of you rule followers are like, no, I have to read every single name to get through this. But uh, I, I want you to know I get it. And uh, I also want you to know I didn't pronounce a lot of those names correctly. What's important is not that you say it right, just say it the same way twice. And then, because no, none of you know, so <laughs> um, here's, here's the deal, though. I want you to know, and I want you to see this morning, that Matthew actually has really good reason for starting his gospel with a genealogy. We may look at that and we just think, man, that is an absolute snoozer, right? Why, why not start with a miracle? Start with something crazy happening. Just draw your readers in. Why, why not that? Why a genealogy? Well, Matthew has good reasons for starting this way. And I want to highlight three of those reasons, three things that we can learn from Matthew's genealogy this morning. This isn't an exhaustive list. There's so much more that we could talk about uh, Uh, But here's the first one. If you're taking notes, the first thing we see uh, by Matthew starting with a genealogy is that the story is true. The story is true. By, By starting his gospel off this way, Matthew wants his readers to know 
this is to be read as, as history. This is to be read as truth. Maybe you've known that, uh, noticed that a lot of stories, they start out with uh, something like once upon a time, right? Or somewhere in a galaxy far, far away. We've heard uh, starts to, to introductions to stories like that before. And when we hear those words, the vagueness of that introduction lets us know that, that what's coming is not intended to be read as, as historical truth, right? What we're, what we're about to read is, is pure fiction. But Matthew begins in a way that makes us think that, that this is different. This is, this is something that he intends for us to read, to believe, to, to view as a historical account. Starting with Christ's genealogy is his way of saying the story is true, and he begins by identifying two very important people in the list. Look again at, at verse 1. Matthew opens with these words. He says, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And if you're at all familiar with the Old, T Old Testament, you know that David and Abraham are both huge figures in the Old Testament story, right? Abraham, uh, his story starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 when God called a man named Abram. His name would later be changed in the story to Abraham, but when we first meet him, his name is Abram. God calls him to leave his home, to leave his people, to leave his country, and to start a brand new nation. And uh, that nation is going to later become known as Israel. And God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, starting in verse 2. Here's what he promised. God told Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I'll make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And then watch this last line. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so notice there's something that God asked Abram to do. I want you to leave your home. I want you to leave your country. So this is going to require some obedience, right? But then God says, if you do that, here's the promise I'm making to you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I'm actually going to bless everybody on earth through you. So this passage is what's known as the Abrahamic Covenant. And it's that final line of it that, that reveals God's ultimate purpose for uh, blessing Abraham and starting this new nation. See, the, the blessing that he's talking about is the fact that the Messiah is going to come from Abraham, through Abraham's line, and ultimately out of Israel. And the Messiah would bless all the people of the earth. So Matthew highlights Abraham, and then he also highlights another name. Jesus is also called the son of David. And of course, David was God's chosen king for Israel. David's story begins in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And God made a covenant with him as well. It's called the Davidic covenant. And it's summarized in 1 Chronicles chapter 17. Speaking of one of David's descendants, here's what God says. He says, I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. So God promised David that one of his descendants is going to rule forever. He's going to have a kingdom that's not going to have any end to it. This throne will be an eternal throne. And isn't it interesting that at the start of his gospel, Matthew identifies Jesus not only as a son of Abraham, but also as a son of David. 
Matthew is telling his Jewish audience right from the start, the story is true. Jesus is the Messiah. We can trace it all the way back to the blessing that was given to Abraham, the blessing that was promised to Abraham. He is the eternal king from the line of David. He's the one we've been waiting for. Now, skeptics will often point out that Matthew's genealogy is quite different than the one recorded in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke's Gospel, we get another list of names, and uh, they don't line up. But most scholars are are quick to say that the genealogy given in Matthew traces Jesus' family tree through Joseph, his adopted father, and the genealogy in Luke traces Jesus' line through Mary, his mother, And having both of those lists is actually critically important, way more important than we may think just at a first glance. Here's why. We just saw that God told David that one of his blood descendants would sit on the throne forever. But then things get a little bit complicated because the kingly line was always passed from a father to his son. And so what we find as the story progresses is that David passes the kingly line to Solomon. And then Solomon passes the kingly line to his son, Jeconiah. But Jeconiah was not a godly king. In fact, he was so wicked that God put a curse on him. He declared that none of Jeconiah's descendants would ever sit on the throne again. You can read about that in Jeremiah 22. And so now we we have a dilemma because God has promised David that one of your blood descendants will sit on the throne. And yet just two generations later, he's saying to Jeconiah, I'm not going to let anybody who is your descendant sit on the throne. This is where we have to pay attention to Luke's genealogy because Luke makes it clear that Mary, Jesus' mother, was also a physical descendant of David through David's other son, Nathan. Joseph was a descendant of Solomon, which means that Jesus got the legal right to the throne through him. Again, it's always from the father to the son. But because he was adopted, Jesus avoided the blood curse carried by Joseph. Okay, so in other words, the virgin birth of Jesus was the only way both of those prophecies could come true. Jesus, again, got the legal right to the throne from Joseph, but because he was adopted, he avoided the blood curse that was on Jeconiah and ultimately Joseph. He was, however, also an actual descendant of David through Mary, therefore fulfilling both of the prophecies at the same time, both the promise to David that a blood descendant would sit on his throne forever and avoiding Jeconiah's line. Who else but God could put something together like that? Who else could orchestrate something? And Matthew wants us to see the story is true. But Matthew's genealogy actually shows us even more than that. Here's something else I want you to see in it. And it's the fact that God works in all things to accomplish his purposes. God works through all things to accomplish his purposes. Maybe you recognized some of the names that we read earlier, and maybe you know some of the stories that are associated with those names. If so, you probably were putting together the pieces of just how dysfunctional Jesus' family tree really was. There's some really messed up stuff that happened to those people and sometimes because of those people. Uh, Let me just give you one example. In verse 3, we read this. We read that Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And so if you know this story, you maybe recognize the name of Judah. Judah was one of Jacob's boys. He had 12 sons. But as you might remember, Judah joined with his other brothers, 
uh, in beating up their youngest brother, Joseph, they threw him in a well and they intended to murder him. That was the plan. But uh, out of a stroke of just sheer kindness, I guess, they decided to sell him into slavery to Egypt instead. All of that to say Judah's got a pretty dark past. But later, his story gets even worse. And um, since I know that some of you have kids in the room, I'm going to make this as G-rated as possible (laughs) just to avoid an awkward conversation on the ride home. But uh, in Genesis 38, we read that Tamar was actually Judah's daughter-in-law. Okay, Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. She married Judah's son, Ur, but Ur died. And in those days, if a man died, it was his brother's responsibility to then provide his widow with children. Well, that presented a problem because the next brother in line was Judah's son, Onan, and Onan didn't care for Tamar. He begrudgingly took her as his wife, but he didn't want to mess up his own family. And so anytime they came together, Onan wouldn't seal the deal, so to speak, okay? He referred to or uh, refused to give her children, and this was viewed as God by very wicked. And so God put Onan to death. And so now Judah is left with only one more son. His first son, Ur, has died. Onan has died. And Judah's looking at Tamar thinking, man, she must be cursed. I don't want to give her to my, my last son, a boy named Shelah, which is interesting enough there, isn't it? But legally speaking, Tamar is now supposed to be given to Shelah. However, because, of, because Judah thinks that maybe Tamar is cursed, he stalls. Like he's just, he, won't, he doesn't give her to Shelah. For years, he stalls. And Tamar begins to realize that Judah is never going to let her marry Sheila, and so she devises a plan. And it turns out that Judah has a weakness for prostitutes. And so Tamar decides that she's going to disguise herself so that Judah won't recognize her. She dresses up like a prostitute. She seduces her father-in-law, which results in a pregnancy that ultimately will produce Perez and Zerah listed here in Matthew's genealogy. Well, three months into her pregnancy, Tamar develops a baby bump. I mean, you can only hide it for so long when you got twins in the belly. And Judah has no idea that those babies are his, declares that Tamar must be an immoral person because here she is pregnant without any husband. And he he says that he's going to stone her. He's going to kill her. And so the people drag her out to kill her. And as they're dragging her out, she proclaims, the man whose belt this is, is the father of these babies. And wouldn't you know, it's Judah's belt. (laughs) Talk about an awkward situation, right? And so Judah uh, ends up not killing her, thankfully. I just want you to see, like, you might think that you have a weird family, but that's some weird stuff right there, right? I mean, you can't get around it. Talk about an awkward situation. Can't you see Perez and Zara looking at Sheila and wondering, hey, mom, is that guy with the lady's name our brother or our uncle? Like, I can't quite render it, but... Anyway, even in this, what I want you to see, even in this situation and in the multiple other messy situations that are associated with the names in Jesus' family tree, God was working to bring about his son. Like none of this threw God off track at all. God was working through all of it. And it's just one example of how he can do that in a messy, chaotic, awful situation. Sometimes it is impossible for us to look at the things that are going on in our lives, the chaos, the mess, 
things that we've done wrong, things that, that were done to us that were wrong, and to be able to look at those things and to understand how any of it can turn out for anything good. But, but this truth is made perfectly clear in the New Testament when Paul writes in the book of Romans that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. And some of you have been around church long enough, and we talk about this passage you know, frequently enough that maybe those words go in one ear and out the other. But I want you to reflect on what that really means. If you love God, everything in your life can be used for your good and for his glory. That, that mess that you think of when you hear me say that, the chaos that's going on right now, the tension, the strife, according to this passage, if you are a person who loves God, he can use that for your good. And you may be looking at it all and thinking, there is no way. There's no way God could use this. There's no way God could use me. There's no way that any of this could lead to anything good. And if you were able to share all of the details of how this played out and what happened and what you did or, or what was done to you, I mean, I, we may just shake our head and think, I, I have no idea. As a pastor, there's so many times that I'll sit and I'll talk with people and they'll tell me about the events in their lives. And I, so often I don't have an answer to why God would allow that kind of thing. I, I can leave as confused as you, but there is one thing that I know for sure, and it's this. God has one ultimate goal for your life. And that goal is to make you increasingly into the image of his son, Jesus. He wants you more and more to walk as Jesus walked, to act as Jesus act, to look more and more like his son. And he will use whatever you bring to the table to accomplish that purpose. Listen to the way J.D. Greer uh, says this. He says, God was at work in the ugliest of situations, bringing forth his most beautiful son. And in Christ, he takes the ugliness of your life and he redeems it for the beauty of his glory. If you ever doubt that God can take the mess of your life and turn it into something good, I hope you'll look at the genealogy in Matthew chapter one and know that he absolutely can. There's one more thing I want you to see uh, in the genealogy this morning, and it's this truth, the truth that the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is, is for everyone. Remember, a first century Jew would, would view their genealogy as, as of utmost importance. It was their resume, so to speak. And, and you know, it's, it's probably not all that uncommon still that on a resume, we highlight the really good parts about us and we maybe don't even mention the bad parts, right? Have you ever done, you haven't done something like that on a resume, but some people do. I know it's hard to believe. Well, that kind of thing happened with genealogies too. Like if you had a, a weird uncle who did something stupid and everybody knew about it, you don't want to be associated with that guy, and so maybe just leave him off the genealogy. But it's interesting to me that Matthew seems to make no attempt whatsoever to hide the names of the people who are on Jesus's family tree. In fact, he seems to go above and beyond to make sure that you know about all of the weird stuff in Jesus's family tree. I want you to pay special attention to the women's names in this list. The reason for that is that 
in, in first, uh, for a first century Jew, including a woman's name on a genealogy was absolutely unheard of. You didn't do that. All you needed was the father's name and then the son's name, and then you could keep going on. But Matthew actually lists four different women in the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew Barclay uh, states in his commentary that by far the most amazing thing about this pedigree is the names of the women who appear in it. And so who are they? Well, the first we've already looked at, Tamar, right? And we already know that her life was a a merry-go-round of dysfunction. But look at verses five and six. Look at who else he mentions. It says, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Okay, and again, no need to mention Rahab. You could just do the father and the son and keep on moving. But Matthew puts her in there. Well, who, who is this? Well, she's a Gentile prostitute. Rahab was a, was a prostitute. She was not part of the Jewish nation. Uh, neither of those things are a good thing, by the way, if you're looking to impress a Jewish audience. But Matthew puts her in there. Reading on, uh, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Again, we don't need that information, just the father and the son. Could have skipped right over her, but Matthew includes Ruth by name. And who was she? Well, she was also a Gentile, not part of of God's chosen people. Uh, She was a Moabite. Um, You can read about the Moabites. They were enemies of the Jewish people throughout history. Um, But reading on, this is where it gets really fascinating. We read Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, who's he referring to there? Bathsheba. I heard a couple of you say he's talking about Bathsheba. You know the story of David and Bathsheba, right? Why Why didn't Matthew just name her like he did Tamar and Rahab and Ruth? Well, I think it's because he wants us to remember the story. He doesn't want us to just skip over the fact that David, yes, he was the greatest king that Israel ever knew. Yes, he was considered a man after God's own heart, but he was also the man who committed adultery with his best friend's wife. Oh, and then he had his best friend murdered to cover it up, and then he lied to the nation of Israel about it for at least a year until he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. I mean, Matthew is just over and over again driving home the point that Jesus' family tree is filled with moral outsiders, ethnic outsiders, gender outsiders, and it's all intended to send one overarching message. And the message is this, the gospel is for everyone. The gospel is for everyone. And in his life and ministry, we see that Jesus was not ashamed to draw close to the morally bankrupt people like Zacchaeus, people like the woman who had been caught in adultery. Jesus loved and cared for those who were ethnic outsiders, people like the Samaritan woman and the Roman official whose son was healed. And many of Jesus' larger group of disciples were actually women. They, They were the women who had been marginalized by society in that day. They had been devalued by society, and yet they came to Jesus and they found value and they found worth. And so Matthew makes sure to include Rahab the prostitute right along with King David because, as Tim Keller puts it, in Jesus Christ, prostitutes and kings sit down together. All of the, the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The genealogy of Matthew shows us that the gospel is for everyone. 
And I appreciate David Platt's assessment of this truth when he says this. He says, these names are included in the line that leads to Christ so that you can know that your name can be included in the line that leads from Christ. That means that no matter who you are and no matter what you've done, there is a place for you in the family of God. You may feel like an outcast, but God has done everything necessary to draw you close. You may feel like your poor decisions or the things that have happened to you mean that your story is over. But in Christ, your story has just begun. Christ's genealogy shows us that that absolutely everyone is invited into the gospel. And because Jesus did not simply come to be a, a good teacher, he did not simply come to give us a good story to tell. Listen, the gospel is more than just a good story. It is good news. The God of heaven left his rightful place, took on flesh and dwelt among us. He was man as God intended man to be. He was tempted in every way as you are, as I am, yet was completely perfectly found without sin and he laid his perfect life down as a sacrifice for your sins and for mine paying the price for everything wrong we've ever done and opening up the door for us to come back to God and after three days in the grave he rose back to life the guy came back to life proving that everything he said was true He was the Messiah. He was the Savior. He is coming again for those who believe in him. And he has now offered his sinless life and his sacrificial death as a gift to you and me. But just like any gift, he doesn't force it on us. We have to actually receive it. It's not just a a universal gift that you just all get it. We've got to receive it. How do we do that? Well, Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, that when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that when we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, that he is who he says he is, that then we are saved. And that means that when you repent of your sins and you turn away from them and you turn instead to Jesus, you submit to him as the Lord of your life, God will credit the perfect life of his son to your account. Corinthians 5.21 tells us that God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus Christ, to become a sin offering for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. When you are in Christ, God no longer sees your past sins. He no longer sees the ugliness of your life. Instead, he sees the beauty and the righteousness of his son covering over you. That is the gift that he has offered through his son, Jesus Christ. And my hope this morning is that through the genealogy in Matthew's gospel, you are seeing something completely unexpected. That the story is true. That God works in all things to accomplish his purpose. And that the gospel is for everyone, even you even you. Let's pray together this morning. And I I do wonder if maybe there's someone here today who maybe you've heard the Christmas story a hundred times or or maybe uh, this Christmas you're hearing it for the first time. But maybe God is connecting some dots for you that have never connected before and and you are recognizing uh, that you are a sinner, that you have not lived up to God's standard 
but you're also understanding that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to die for you so that you could come back into a right relationship with him. I want you to know if that's you today, that you can pray a a simple prayer to God. It doesn't have to be eloquent, but it does have to be from your heart that you would say, God, I, I recognize that my sin has separated me from you, but I also recognize that you have done everything necessary to bring me back to you. And I receive the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, today. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. I repent of them. From this day forward, Jesus is gonna be the Lord of my life. And I want you to know that when you pray a prayer like that, God's answer is never no. He welcomes you into his family with open arms. You become a son of the king or a daughter of the king. You are eternally his. But maybe there are some of those uh, others here today, others like me who have maybe known Christ, walked with Christ for quite some time. And uh, the, the Christmas season is one of those things we... We just get so busy, don't we? And the gifts and, and the stress and the, the schedules and the busyness of it all, it all just distracts us from what this season is really about. And so maybe today is just a reminder for you. And God sent his son for you. He sent his son for me. That sinless life that he lived and laid down, it, it was for you and it was for me. And we have hope because of Jesus We have hope that he has saved us from our sins. We have hope that he is coming again. And so, Father, I just pray this morning, if if we've been distracted from those truths, God, would you recenter our lives on the gospel? Father, I pray that we would set all of our hope fully on the grace that will be given when Christ is revealed and that you will find us faithful until that day. We want to bring you glory with every part of our lives, we are trusting that you can take even the messiest parts of them and that because we love you, God, and because of your love for us, you're gonna work it all for good. We cannot wait for Christ to come again, but we wanna be faithful until he does. And it's in Christ's name that we pray this morning, amen.